so we're back on time on time um i mean i haven't i messed up last week like i've said like this time of year is like chaos in academia usually um not for everybody not for everybody because a lot of people are already done um i'm not like we just got done today's the last day of finals week oh my gosh uh i have a large number of final exams that are still looking to be graded. Uh, I keep waiting for the um, little elves. To come little grading it. elves to come They're out. To yeah. Come tonight and do them. Uh, I don't think they will though. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, the great awakening episode is up. Um, this one is pretty short on its heels. Uh, this one's a special episode. Um, it is, an episode dealing with uh, Stonewall uh, and Pride Month. And it is June, which is traditionally Pride Month. And the structure for this is going to be a little bit different, but we'll talk about that when we actually get into the episode. But uh, yeah, we've got this. And uh, I don't know what we're doing next after this. What did we decide we're doing after this episode? think about it i don't know we'll think about it it'll be a surprise, be a surprise. <clears throat> um yeah all let's right get let's it. get into it let's get into it welcome to an incomplete history i'm hillary and i'm jeff and we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast Welcome to episode 47. I have a lot of weather to report. Like exciting weather? It's not been exciting. It's been awful. It's been raining since Sunday and it's Friday now. Like huge thunderstorms. I think we've had over 20 inches of rain in I the past had rain. five or six days. And it's just like everything's flooded. There's like a levee that's about to break in town. We're okay here, but like. It's just been like nonstop downpour. Today it stopped and now it's really hot. It's like 87 degrees and the humidity makes it feel like it's 97. And so it's just been, it's been a really awful week weather-wise here. And I think other parts of the South have had this torrential downpour yeah. as well. So I mean, you're slowly working your way around the Gulf Coast. Yeah, just slowly working my way around. That's right. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> just been very wet and rainy and um ugh, and hot just so hot oh i can't gosh. wait to hear your weather report in september <sighs> i'm not looking forward to that it's bad <laughs> it's not, it's not. i'm so scared <laughs> i really 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 hate humidity i hate it it's i don't so mind heat like i don't mind like the southern california heat i grew up with where you know it's drier and it can be really hot but like there's not the misery attached to it. It's just, well, it's really hot with the humidity. I mean, it's, it's a miserable feeling. And I've heard people say that, you know, and it's kind of a joke. Like it's not the heat that gets you. It's the humidity, but my God, it's true. 102 degrees in San Diego, which is record setting heat. We don't get that hot generally. Sometimes you do. Sometimes we do. But if we do get there, it is, it's bearable. You get bearable. in some shade 
Well, and there's a breeze usually. You go jump in the Pacific Ocean, which is like 33 degrees. It's 33. Yeah, it's really close to freezing. You but. know, actually, my favorite is you kind of get in really kind of shallow water where you can put half your body in the water and half out. Yeah. You yeah. just kind of bob and back and the be, top so. half of you gets really. But it's sunburned. bearable. Like so, here's the thing: like the Gulf Coast, um, and places like Houston and Mississippi and North Florida. It's just, it lingers, that humidity, it just, the heat sticks to you. Yeah. Yeah. And again, Uh, I've heard people talk about this my whole life and I'm just like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't, you don't understand it until you're standing in it and then you're, it feels like an inferno inside of your body and you just want to like break something. I don't know. It's it's really horrible. It makes you feel angry. Does it not? Maybe it's just me. Like I feel anger. When I'm in that heat. Well, I mean, it's a lot of times when you get kind of hot environments, emotions flare, which it kind of has something to do with today's topic. Hey, look at that segue. Look at that the, the weather, weather came, again. weather works in. Our weather here is fine. It's beautiful. The May, the June gloom burned off early today. So it's kind of sunny. It's not windy. There's only one fire in the county that's active Only right now. one fire. There's only one fire in the county right now. Holy moly, um, you guys. Which is... Which is, well, I mean, San Diego County is one of the largest counties in the state. So we, area geographically. So the fact that we only have yeah. one kind of active fire right now is good. Um, it's doing really well. Yeah. Yeah. So for today's episode, we're going to do a little something different, right? Is kind of what you talked about. Well, um, so I, I wanted to do something for Pride Month. And, uh, you know, I lived in New York City for a number of years. And actually, a number of my close friends... Um, lived in New York when Stonewall happened mm-hmm. and kind of had personal experiences with it and as part of the LGBTQ community I think one of the things I can do is kind of combine that and ideas of personal activism with my role as a professional historian Because a lot of times I feel one thing we do as historians is we pump the brakes on things a little bit. Yeah. Um, I am not a 20th century historian. Neither am I. (laughs) Definitely not a late 20th century historian. Definitely not a late 20th century historian. That being said, the methods we use are all valid here. Um, But it's interesting because it's been uh, 52 years the end of this month has been 52 years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Stonewall happened about 11 months before I was born. Mm-hmm. So I've always kind of lived in a kind of post Stonewall world. Right. Um, but I think there are a lot of misconceptions about Stonewall. I think there are a lot of con- misconceptions about Pride Month and where it comes from and what the gay rights movement looked like. Um, well, and that's what I'm excited to get into with you specifically when we have this conversation, because we're kind of watching history or the record of history taking shape before our eyes, like the way it's remembered or yeah. the way it's talked about. And when you have something so personal like this, you know, like Stonewall and the fact that you grew up in, you know, not grew up in New York, but you lived in New York City for many years and you know people who are connected to this event. And then 
say you watch a documentary on it or something and you're just like, that's not what happened or right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm really fascinated by watching the historical record take place, like watching history being written down or relayed or retold when there are still people who are alive, who were there and witnessed it and who were impacted by it in the wake of it. And they're like, Oh, that's not really, that's not really the gist of it. Or, you know, they got this wrong or that wrong. And then it, it calls into question everything we know about history. And it kind of calls into question what we talked about last week, where it's like, when we were creating a narrative for this nation, you know, this takes place, say, in the 1830s. And we do a lot to create the narrative, whereas people who may have been alive, say, during the revolution might have said, eh, wasn't quite like that. Uh but there is something that happens with history, with historians, um, memory. We talk a lot about memory in um, our graduate seminars and stuff. It's like, how do we remember these things and how do we um, record them? And I think in this case, I'm excited to talk about like watching, watching this narrative take shape over the past decade or so, which I think there's been like a kind of a hyper focus on it. Um, and there's been a lot of documentaries that have come out. So I'm excited to talk in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, it, I mean, it's so what's interesting is Stonewall and the kind of the rise of the gay rights movement happens within the context of Vietnam, right? The Vietnam War is taking place along the same time. And there are intersections there. But what I find it interesting is I think you and I are able to take a very kind of dispassionate view about Vietnam and kind of how that history is being written. Neither of us is Vietnamese. Neither of us is Vietnamese American. Um, neither of us are veterans of the war. Neither of us or I don't know any veterans. I don't have like family who's. I know people who I know some people in but, the military, but they yeah. were never deployed to Vietnam. I mean, it's so our connections are much more tenuous to that. And I think we can kind of be like, look, we need to look at everything and yeah. figure out what do we have docu enough to kind of argue this is going on versus what do we not have enough evidence to kind of support this or whereas with this i'm close to this and and i find myself a lot of times privileging some accounts over others and sometimes that's the professional historian in me saying look this account is closer to what we look at as something that's verifiable whereas this other thing seems a little remote well, that's how we go about our job though, right? We do something called triangulating data. Mm -hmm. So you can hear, you know, okay, so-and-so said this happened. And this is where oral history can get really, um, I think, messy. And I don't mm -hmm. do oral history, but I know that a lot of 20th century historians do do it. Um, but, you know, say you have an account from somebody and they say, okay, this happened, this happened, this happened. As a historian, it is your job to go out then and to try to verify that information using other sources to corroborate trying to find newspaper articles, maybe arrest records, um, maybe records from pamphlets or something that were distributed. Um, photographs. You know, maybe photographs, right? Like there are so many different mediums that we can go and collect, or, I mean, even other people corroborating events too can sometimes be helpful, but um, it's very difficult sometimes when you have like a personal account and it's like, well, we don't have anything to corroborate that except for this person said it. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that that's what sometimes can muddy the waters. Well, so one good thing that happened a couple of years ago. So 2019 was the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. 
And a good thing that happened in 2018 and 2019 is the National Parks National Park Service uh, worked alongside the center, which is the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Community Center in New York City, worked along with them as well as the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. And they recorded as many oral histories of people connected to Stonewall as possible. And and the whole thing is, is you didn't even have to actively be saying you were there or you were there during any of these protests or anything. If you were alive during that moment, they wanted to interview you mm-hmm. to talk, to, to kind of recollect yourself. There are 64 interviews that are all available on YouTube. If you just look up, if you go to YouTube and you look up Stonewall Oral History Project, they're all there. And here's the thing. I think the oral histories are a great source base, but they are not infallible. Mm -hmm. And that is something I think people need to understand. Um, This is not to say people can say things that aren't true, although that can definitely happen. I mean, it's if you go back, if everybody in France who fought with, who said they fought with the resistance during World War II actually fought with the resistance in World War II, there would have been no collaborators in France. Right. Then France maybe wouldn't have fallen to Nazi occupation. True, though, right? I mean, you've got people who are imagining themselves maybe as more involved in something than they really were. Right. Or just reversing the narrative and saying, no, I was involved in that. Right. Well, and it makes you relevant, right? Yeah. Oh, it's cool. So let's get into, though, I mean, I think we kind of started out with an assumption that people know what we're talking about when we say Stonewall. So let's get into that. I mean, so we're talking New York City, Greenwich Village, 1969. And we're talking about a gay bar that's run by the mafia. So June 28th, 1969 is is when this starts. Um, It is a bar. It still exists today. You can go there. It is on the National Registry of Historic Places. Thanks to President Obama. Yes. Thanks to Obama. Um, It is, there is a crass commercialism about it now as the birthplace of the gay rights movement that kind of bothers me. Um, (laughs) uh, But here's the thing. So Being gay in New York in 1969 was easier than being gay in other parts of the country. Yes. It being was, anything in New York City was right. easier, New York right? Was like it was a, a haven. To themselves yes. Or to discover who they really were. Right. Um, New York City had a thriving gay community in 1969. But it's important to point out, though, that even though there was a thriving gay community, that homosexuality was illegal, even in New York City. Yeah. Right? So Homosexuality was illegal. Presenting yourself as a gender that you were not was considered a mm-hmm. crime. Um, dancing with people of the same sex was a crime. Serving were, alcohol to people, right, who were engaged in same sex dancing or carousing was also a crime. That was a crime. Yeah. But you, but nonetheless, you had this whole kind of, yes. uh, you had bars and clubs all over the city. Uh, a great book, if you want to kind of read about New York before Stonewall, what the gay community was like, uh, George Chauncey's Gay New York. This is a brilliant book. Classic um, favorite. Yeah. It's, it's just an amazing book that just is so rich in detail. 
Um, so it's not like nothing is going on in New York prior to 69 and then magically mm-hmm. things happen. Um, so you had a lot of bars. And what's interesting is this. The Stonewall, one of the reasons it is a flashpoint is that it was kind of a bar for misfits. So you had other bars where, for example, black men would not be welcome. You had other bars where white men would not be welcome. You had bars where, and this is a trigger warning, I'm going to use a lot of the terms that the people of the time used. And one of the issues has to deal with transvestite. And there's a document I'll reference later on that's really brilliant, kind of the way the people of the time broke this out. Transvestite was a term used by people within the community. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and transvestite was kind of an umbrella term as well. But there were bars where people who were transvestites were not welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also had hustlers and kind of young, homeless, gay youth in New York City. There were places they weren't welcome. The Stonewall Inn was a place where all of these people were welcome to an extent, a certain extent. Can you clarify something for me? Because I kept getting... I don't know mixed. if I can or not, okay, but I'll we'll try. try. Was it a lesbian bar as well? Not really. Okay. Because see, now that's more something where I, you know, I've watched a couple documentaries, read a couple things, and people were like, oh, you know, lesbians went here too. And I... My understanding, you know, studying any sort of um, gay culture, et cetera, from way early on to to Stonewall, there's often a separation of gay and lesbian. Yeah, there is. There's actually a really well, there's a a, when we get to 1970, which is the first time a pride parade is held. mm -hmm. um, There are some confrontations that take place over the next few years between lesbians and people that would be today we would call members of the transgender community mm-hmm. and they're pretty heated as well well and there's a lot of heated debates that happen racially as well mm-hmm. between uh, black women who are lesbians and white women who are lesbians i mean yeah. that's the thing to, that that i think is so important to, to point out is like the gay community is not a monolith no and, well, and i think it's controversial to say that but it's true i mean there have been so many divisions and splits i think that you know, there's an idea of, well, we should all get along and get, you know, like have the same agenda, but it's, it's often not the case. No. Yeah. That's, that's the thing is a lot of my students, when we do 20th century history, they do digital projects and somebody inevitably in a class of a certain size or larger always wants to do something about Stonewall. Mm -hmm. And they come to me and we talk as we kind of plan out their project. And they always imagine the they always imagine it as the LGBTQIA plus community. Yeah, and, and that like, just that acronym didn't even exist, right? That I didn't mean... exist, and there was not unity. There was not mm-hmm. unity across any of those groups. In fact, there was not even unity within one of those letters, like gay. There wasn't even unity really there. Mm-hmm. So the Stonewall Inn does stand out as this kind of special place, um, but it's special because of who's running it so the mob runs it why does Um, the mob run it though that's what i find so interesting well there's two reasons first of all they can overcharge it's not like they care about the gay community i just want to say that right it's an easy way to make money Mm -hmm. 
via charging ridiculous amounts for the drinks. And at the same time, there's this blackmail operation that runs alongside it. Yes. Yes. So if you get middle class and wealthy, generally white men that enter this bar, you can blackmail them. Because your life, didn't they? In 1969, your life can be destroyed with this because newspapers, and this is something, something I find very interesting. The New York Times has never reconciled its active participation in this system. Sure. And a lot of other newspapers did the same thing. So they ran these celebratory articles in 2019, oh, the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, blah, blah, but they blah. But the they were involved in maligning and ruining Well, lives. that's the thing is the New York Times yeah. runs this thing from the police. Finally, the police apologized to the LGBT <laughs> community for what they did, blah, blah, blah. But the New York Times doesn't actually say, look, we were complicit for decades in this. When the police would have arrests at these places, we would publish names of people who had been arrested. Right. And getting your name in one of those lists, you were done. You were done in government work. If you worked in the, for the government, you were done. If you were worked for a corporation, you were done. Yeah, if even worked, in the private sector, right? Yeah. If you worked for a school. I mean, basically, I think the only thing you wouldn't be done with is if you worked in an industry where it was already widely accepted that many gay people worked, mm-hmm. or if you owned your own business, you could maybe survive. Um, so getting arrested... I mean, that's the thing is the act of actually just getting arrested. That was the damage right there. Most of these people who are arrested don't serve any jail time. They're kind of out the next day, but it's just the act of the arrest is the punishment is the public Mm -hmm. besmirching, right? I mean, it is, it's the being torn down publicly and um, having this private part of your life exposed and then, you know, losing your job, et cetera. I mean, that's, it was all about humiliation. And mm-hmm. you're right. The New York Times and other newspapers were wildly complicit in this because it was kind of like what sold papers. It was kind of like a inquirer sort of thing too, right? Yeah. I mean, it's people love to read this stuff. It was kind of. Yeah, it's licentious. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, you know, titillating, licentious. Oh, The other part too here, you know, it's not just that um, homosexuality is criminalized, which, you know, of course that's causing a large swath swath of problems, but um, that it's also a medical diagnosis. Yeah, psychological. It's Mm -hmm. classified as a disease, as a psychological condition by the American Psychological Association Mm -hmm. for years. Up until into the 70s, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. which meant that if you came out as gay, you could be deemed mentally incompetent and unable and, to And so many marriage. women were institutionalized. Mm-hmm. So many, and, and men too, were institutionalized for homosexuality. And, you know, one of the things that isn't talked about very often um, is that, you know, that globally homosexuality has always been criminalized. And when, you know, when the Nazis... Uh, were defeated in World War II and the allies went in to liberate the camps, there were a lot of homosexuals who were still placed in camps and they were just transferred to jails. Yeah. They weren't liberated. They were still incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about like from a 21st century perspective, I mean, I think we're like, Oh, we're all buying chicken sandwiches and there's, there's pride flags everywhere. But 
it really wasn't that long ago. And still, in some ways, it's very dangerous to be a part of the community, to be a part of the gay community. And I think that that's part of where the fractures come from, too. What do you think about, you know, just like what the, do you mean we're buying chicken sandwiches? Uh, the Burger King now. Oh, yeah. Remember, yeah. they have like the rival chicken sandwich now that they're like, we we donate to Pride now and we even do it on Sundays because they're trying to compete against Chick-fil-A. Right. And that's that is so disgusting. Capitalism, corporate, like you don't care about well, gay people. You pride. care about selling hamburgers. Well, that's, that's the thing. Corporate pride is such a sham. Um, it's, it's really sad. I mean, the- so Nest, so Nestle has like a rainbow logo they're using right now. Mm. But if you go to the Middle East or Africa or parts of Asia, they don't have that. Oh, it's weird. Like, it's like, huh? So you're so you're proud to celebrate pride in the places where it's completely safe for you to do so. Right. And people will buy your products. So, but the places where it might have a little pushback, you don't do that. That's brave. That is bravery. So brave of you. Yeah. Um, So, well, I want to, I want to start rolling stuff back because like there's this obsession with June 28th and we can talk about what happens on June 28th, but there's an obsession with it, but there are things that happened before June 28th that I think really get overlooked. And one Mm -hmm. of them I want to look at first happens just six days before. And it's something that I'm still trying to work through how I feel about this, but I think it is a gross characterization people are starting to engage with. So there have been several movies that have come out about Stonewall now, several fictionalized books, all these things. And a couple of these works, a theme that keeps coming up is Judy Garland commits suicide on June 22nd, 1969. Now, Mm. gay men of a certain age adore Judy Garland. Um, It has very little to do with her being on Wizard of Oz. It has more to do with her career as an adult. She would sing these torch songs, kind of these tormented kind of unrequited love songs. And if if you're a gay man living in the 1960s, that sounds like she's singing to you. Right. It sounds like Mm -hmm. she is living your experience. So she commits suicide. The argument goes that this makes some people so distraught and they're kind of mourning Judy Garland's death that when the police seek to enter and arrest people on June 28th at the Stonewall Inn, they're willing to fight back. I call BS on that. That, you know, that's actually insulting it's stereo. It's very it's, stereotypical. It's very stereotypical, and it's talk. It's um, using the a new for. I mean, maybe they're not using it directly, but the phrase typically attributed to people who are homosexual is hysterical, mm-hmm. right? And that's like a medical diagnosis. So they're basically repackaging that and saying, yep. "Oh, the gays were just so hysterical over Judy Garland." It's like, no, they were fighting back after decades of targeted abuse of their communities. And yep. and it, what happens in Stonewall, if it, again, I'm going to ask you, I think that this is what I understand about it, is that the mob who, run, who ran these places, they were in with the police. And the police would typically tip them off when a raid was coming, and they didn't this time right. on June 28th. And so it was kind of like an unexpected oh my God, the cops are here. And they had no other choice but to fight back because ordinarily they would have been tipped off beforehand and would have dispersed. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yeah. So, well, here's the thing. So first of all, we're probably going to get some hate mail about this. 
um, ever since the formation of city police departments in a coherent manner in the 19th century, they have been rife with corruption. True. Absolutely true. Documentably so. And the whole thing is, is if you're kind of a beat cop and you're not making that much money, it's easy for you to accept payback. Why would yeah. bribes and things? Bribes. So one of the things the police department would regularly do is they would let gay bars continue mm-hmm. as long as they paid a certain amount of money every month. Mm-hmm. Now, the story goes, the mob bosses or the, the members of the mafia who ran the Stonewall Inn missed their payment to the police. And this is why the police did this. Oh, man. Um, so I want to push this back 10 years prior, though. May 1959. Okay. I think Los Angeles may be the actual birthplace of the modern gay rights movement. Cooper Donuts in Bunker Hill. So it's this little donut shop in Bunker Hill. Bunker Hill today is a very built-up area of downtown L.A., um, and what's interesting is this, the people who frequented that location at, at night were gay men, both black and white gay men, as well as Hispanic gay men, trans women, hustlers, drag queens, people who really had nowhere else they could go. So the composition of the, the crowd very much mirrors Stonewall Inn. This is a donut establishment? Yeah, this is Cooper Donuts. So that's something most places weren't 24-hour back right, so this in the is day. 24 hours. Donut, donut shops were 24-hour. And that's why cops get the reputation of being in donut shops, because they would go to write the reports in them late at night because they were what was open. Right. So this so, makes sense. So California had a law in the books that if your gender presentation didn't match the gender noted on your ID, you could be arrested. The cops go into this place and they try to arrest some people. So there's a great book called City of Night that talks about this um, by John Recchi. Um, People watching this happen, they start to throw scalding coffee at the cops. They threw donuts at them and the cops flee empty handed. The this riot kind of spreads. It's and we can talk about riot protest uprising whatever, but the riot spreads. The police had to kind of block off the area. Some protesters get arrested. But it's the first kind of recorded case of people within the community fighting back against the police doing this thing. Ten years before Stonewall. Now, it does not cause any kind of uh, um, reform within the police department or city government or state laws or anything like that, which may be why Stonewall is where we should celebrate because Stonewall, actually the police department finally decides to stop doing some of the crap it's been doing. But I mean, it still happens. So we've got that and we've got another really important one in, in California that happens as well. Um, in 1966, Three years before Stonewall, August 1966. So these things always happen in the summer, which I find very interesting. It's hot. People get cranky. See, that's what it's saying. hot. Well, Watts. Right. 
in Los Angeles? Well, in Los- I mean, last summer. Um, last summer. I mean, it's right, it's yeah. summer is a flashpoint for people. So it's Compton's Cafeteria. It's hot, yeah. <laughs> so Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco, uh, it is run by Gene Compton, and it's down in the Tenderloin, which is a was a really sketchy place in San Francisco. Uh, the cafeteria drew hustlers, street kids, transgender sex workers. The police come in and they arrested a customer for impersonating a female. This so is, this is interesting, isn't it? Because so often these laws are on the books and they're kind of enforced Mm, uh, irregularly or haphazardly right, depending not, on what they feel like doing at that moment. Yeah. They're not, they're not enforced in any sustained way. And no, and not consistently. Across, yeah. Well, for years, New York city had a, a law in the books that women couldn't wear high heels. Well, and weren't there laws on the books about, I mean, maybe it was just social decorum, but that women couldn't wear trousers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so they t- attempt to arrest uh, somebody for impersonating a female. This woman throws coffee in the face of the police and like all hell breaks loose. And there's ends up being over 60 people involved in another riot where they're breaking things, um, chasing the police, throwing things at the police. Um, they destroyed a police car in the process. Um, uh, and this continues for a couple of nights. But again, it doesn't really cause any change in what the city or the state is doing. Now, what it does do is there is in San Francisco, there is the formation, the city meets along with these protesters and they do form something called the National Transsexual Counseling Unit. And they named this guy, this sergeant in the police department, Elliot Blackstone, a police officer who will serve as liaison to the homophile community. So even though there's no broad structural change, there is kind of this wedge that starts to get established here, this opening wedge of reform. Because at least now there's going to be some talks. And after this, we have other things. We have... uh, Protest in Los Angeles the following year in 67. Uh, Protest in the summer of 68 in Los Angeles. And then we get to 69 and the Stonewall. Yeah. It wasn't like just this one moment, everything coalesced. I mean, it's like an important moment, but there's a lot of lead up. And you also have these organizations that are these homophile organizations. That's what Mm -hmm. they call themselves. Like the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Politis. Who And the Mattachine Society does these regular peaceful protests outside of government locations, including the White House. And there are some great interviews with people who were involved in the Mattachine Society um, about the rules of how you had to dress for the protest. Hmm. And I think their rules for dress indicate the divisions within the gay community. So... If you were a man, 
you had to dress like a man. And if you're a woman, you had to dress like a woman. And they would even go further than that and tell you exactly what you needed to wear. If you're a woman, you needed to wear a skirt. The skirt needed to be between this length and that length. You need to wear a blouse. You need to wear a sweater over the blouse. If you were a man, you needed to wear a suit with a shirt, with tie, with socks. The suit and the shirt and the socks and the tie could not be any but a very narrow range of colors. Is this all in an attempt to like show some level of like, well, we're classy or like, what well, I mean, what I think the what they're trying to do is separate themselves from the public stereotype of what. Okay. Like, oh, we're normal. That's the exact, that's what I think they're saying is we're yeah. normal. And these other people in the community are not normal. Okay. okay. So right here, here's a, yeah, here's a division, major division in the community. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's already othering a whole group of people. Right. Well, and we see this in a lot of civil rights movements. Sure. We see one of the ways you kind of push towards civil rights is by taking either part of your group or another group that's kind of next to your group and throwing them under the bus. Say, well, give us rights. Don't give these people rights, but give us rights. But it, despite that fact, the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Blightus do kind of push for social acceptance. And remember, all this is going on in the in the face of McCarthyism, mm-hmm. where just the accusation of being gay is enough to get you fired and banned, blacklisted for life. Yeah. So what else do you have questions about? I was going to well, walk into another story, but I won't. I'll let you ask questions. Well, I mean, one of the questions that keeps cropping up for me, and it, it's been based on like some personal experience talking to people, talking to students, there seems to be this myth that like gay people just don't exist before the 60s, you know, until they start making noise or something. And like we know as historians that that's just patently false, but historians themselves struggle with discussing homosexuality in history well that discussing homosocial relationships behavior yeah the word is certainly but like we have a hard time even in our own ranks of admitting when like you know there was a same-sex relationship there's this idea that it comes out sorry like so much later you know right so there's so the word is the the word homosexual is invented it's a neologism at the end of the 19th century the german guy invents it um it doesn't exist prior to that moment and there's a lot of indication that people do not construct their identity based on their sexual preference until sometime in the 19th century for the most part that might not be completely true the problem is this. So as, as historians who also look at women, there's a great book that was written called Women Before the Bar that has to do with women showing up in legal records. A lot of times marginalized communities, women for a long time are a marginalized community, if not still. Um, marginalized communities, it's hard to find them in the historical record a lot of times. So if you do have somebody in Boston in 1780 who constructs his identity based on his sexual attraction to other men, we don't have it. We don't have a record of it. Um, we and do so know just that because are, we don't have the record, though, doesn't mean that there are people who 
participating in same-sex relationships. It, right. It doesn't the mean they didn't exist. But here's the thing. One of the ways I explain it to students when they kind of really get stuck on applying modern ideology and, and terms back in the past, sexuality for a long time is like a revolving door. And we have instances of men having sex with men but neither man considered themselves anything approaching what we would today cost call homosexual. Right. Um, because they have families and, and it's just considered like, well, if you have, you're married and you're procreating and you're taking care of your family, who cares what you're doing otherwise. Right. right? Boston whaling ships that are out at sea for, you know, months at a time, there's gay sex going on on those cowboys. Right. There's, there is, that doesn't mean people are constructing their identity based on it. No. And it doesn't mean that they are homosexual, right? It doesn't mean that they are just having sex with people of the same sex. It means that sex is a lot more fluid. Sexuality is a lot more fluid. It does. It's not something that people base their identity on. Um, So what changes though, in the 1960s where you do have people basing their identity on sexuality, uh, on their sexuality. Like, can you talk a little bit about that or like what you may assume about that? Because now we do, we, we have, we're in a society now where a lot of people's identity rests in their sexuality. So, you know, again, historians will always want to push it back. First, I think social change in the mid 19th century starts to force this to happen. And that revolving door increasingly becomes a one-way door. If you ever leave the room of heterosexuality to try out the room of homosexuality, you are forever in that room. So if a man has a wife and children, but goes and has gay sex, he is now in that other room. And no matter how many women he has sex with after that, he will forever be deemed by society as being homosexual. It becomes very bifurcated. You're one or the other. And I mean, this is part of that whole Victorian obsession with trying to understand and get comfortable with the complexity of humans. It's trying to label everything, right? It has something to to do with that. Yeah. So I think you've got that, which forces people within the community itself to be like, well, I guess we're going to have to find things to unite us. And this is what Chauncey argues a lot. He says, you know, in Gay New York, he argues it's this late 19th, early 20th century. This is where the gay community crystallizes as something because you can only go certain places and be yourself. If you go to certain, if you go to kind of mainstream restaurants and theaters and things, you can't be yourself. But if you end up at a place like the Stonewall Inn, you can have a drink while sitting next to a man. You can dance with that man. You can kiss, you can display affection you can't do that other places. And bars, particularly in places like San Francisco, New York, LA, but any city become a kind of a, a center point for the gay community because it's the only place they can do this. Now, and this there happens is, too in other homosocial spaces like gyms and bathhouses and right, stuff too. Right, right. So this is Chauncey says that all of these places where it's just men, they start to develop these kind of parallel lines. There is something going on similarly, but not quite as studied, in fact, not studied much at all amongst lesbians. Again, Society is obsessed with what men do. 
So they study that more and they kind of relegate what women are doing to a footnote. Um, we don't have a book addressing the development of a lesbian community in New York like Chauncey's Gay New York. For those of you who are aspiring historians out there, this is a field that needs research. There, you know, some of it, um, actually, there's there are some things about like um, the Women's Army Corps. There are. In, in World are. War II. And mm -hmm. I think that that's where I've seen a lot of information that I've, anything I've learned about lesbian culture, like the formation of it in the United States or sexuality is becoming, you know, at the forefront comes a lot out of World War II when women start going to work. And then most particularly when they start joining the military. Um, and I was watching a documentary called Before Stonewall. I don't know if you've seen that's that a one. Great, it's a great documentary. It's a good it's one. It's got some great archival about, footage. Yeah. So the, one of the archival things that they're, that they dig into is like they're interviewing a woman who was part of the, it was a whack. Woman's. Oh yeah. If the general wants to dismiss all yeah. lesbians. Yeah. The so the general comes and yeah, the general's just like, I heard there's lesbians in the core and they're like, it's like, can you lead an investigation? He approaches this woman. Can you lead an investigation into these lesbians? And she goes, yeah, sure. And he goes, and I want a list of all their names. We're going to be kicking them out. And she goes, okay, first on the list is me. And he just like looked at her. What? And then all the women around was like, I'm on the list. I'm on the list. I'm on the list. And he was just like, okay, forget it. And just walked away because he figured out, it's just like, wow, there are a lot of lesbians in the Women's Army Corps, right? And so, and I think yeah. that was a fascinating anecdote. Well, it's so here's, here's part of my theory for why I think there isn't, this kind of moment within the lesbian community as there is in the gay community right here in 69. And a lot of that is interviews with women from lesbians in 1969. They talk about, they have dual identities, right? They're a woman and they're a lesbian. And when they get asked, there are a couple of interviews where they get asked, like, which is more important to you? Almost universally, they say me being a woman is more important because that's the form of oppression I face every single moment of every single day. So I think a lot of women, whereas men in the gay community have the luxury to focus on sexuality as a site to protest, many women within the lesbian community don't have that because they're in the midst of fighting this fight to be treated as equal human beings. We're still trying to get paid the same. Right. Well, right yeah, now. I mean, it's women in 1969, women are fighting to be able to open bank accounts and buy real estate without a man co-signing and do all of these things. And not to mention get paid equal pay, not constantly be sexually harassed by every man around her. Whereas men, there is some luxury there to kind of focus on this other issue. And this isn't to minimize the struggles. Would we call that male privilege? Um, we would. I, I think it's definitely there. And I think this is, there is a great, clip also in after stonewall which is the sequel to before stonewall, i saw that too I saw of there's a committee of lesbians and gay lesbian and gay people like in this community center doing stuff one of the gay men asks one of the lesbians to go check if they have a knife to cut a cake bob why did you ask her why didn't you ask a dude like it doesn't being gay doesn't magically make you a feminist. Right. It doesn't magically make you think women aren't there to serve you. It also doesn't magically make you be 
anti-racist. Right. That's a huge part of all of this. And, you know, we've talked in the past about the civil rights movement. We have to remember that that's going on right in the midst of this, this too. Is, right? The women's uh, second wave feminism, the civil rights movement, the Chicano movement in Southern California. Yeah. The free speech movement on college campuses, Vietnam War protests. These are all going on at the same moment. And a lot of times there are moments where there's an alignment, where there's a nexus and you get kind of cooperation. But more times than not, there is real tension here. Um, We have young black men who are very involved in the civil rights movement who are also gay. And they basically get told you can either be in the civil rights movement and pretend you're not gay, or you can go deal with that. You can't do both. Right. Because there's a lot of homophobia Mm -hmm. within the civil rights movement. And there's a lot of racism within the gay rights movement. And there's a lot of misogyny within the gay. I mean, it's all you're saying. It does not all magically erase. I mean, look at the Black Panthers that a lot of the protesters, or at least some of the protesters at Stonewall call themselves the Pink Panthers. But within the Black Panthers, there's this misogyny. Um, What is the question? What is the... Um, is it Stokely Carmichael that gets asked the question, what's the proper role of a woman in mm. the in the black movement? And he says, on her back. Oh, my God. And I know Angela Davis is really frustrated with it, multiple points, this kind of misogyny that pervades that movement. So here's the thing. It's, it's one lesson for contemporary listeners and contemporary people kind of reading history. Don't imagine... If you're one of these things, it means you are perfect on every other issue. Right. That if you have face oppression in one area, it doesn't mean that you're just, you know, automatically the most wokest of the woke. Because I mean, because they're not. They're not. No. And there's fractures within each. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, that's so important of his lesson right at this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I think that a lot of people don't want to grapple with that or they think that again that these movements are monolithic that everybody who's gay supports everybody who's trans who supports everybody who's a woman who supports women's rights who support you know whatever who supports blm right like it's not the case like if you're if you have an interest in one of these groups that does not automatically make you interested in all of them or supportive of all of them because again Mm -hmm. they're just not monolithic causes I think that makes people really uncomfortable, but it's just true. Well, because I think they want to, they want to make an assumption that once you've kind of realized the truth on one thing, you automatically are going to be on the right page on everything else. And that's just not how things work. Um, I do want to get to this thing about transvestites, um, which is the term they're using at the time. And I want to talk about a couple of specific people, Martha Johnson, or Marsha Johnson, not Martha Johnson, Marsha Johnston, uh, John's son, uh, Lee Brewster, um, and a couple of other people. So Lee Brewster runs a store um, in Greenwich Village. Um kind of it opens in the wake of Stonewall but he always identifies as he and he identifies himself as a transvestite 
And what's really amazing is this. So he publishes out of his store, the Mardi Gras Boutique in New York City. He publishes this magazine for a couple of decades called Drag. And in it, in the very, you can go on the Internet Archive and kind of look at past issues that the Boston Library generously kind of digitized and put up for it. But in issue number three, which is in 1971, just two years after Stonewall, there's this great picture and it kind of says, telling it like it is. And you have four people sitting next to one another. And here's the caption for the photo. A group consisting of Lee Brewster, drag queen, Barbarella, transsexual, Bunny Eisenhower, heterosexual transvestite, and Kay Gibbons, homosexual transvestite, spoke to a group at New York University on the various aspects of transvesticism to a standing room audience. So what I find really interesting here is 1979, there's already distinction that not everyone who may be listed on their driver's license as male is dressed in women's clothing for the same reason. Now, a lot of the terms they use are terms that our students would be very uncomfortable with today. Like you talking about the term transvestite itself or other terms? Um, I think drag queen causes some problems. Yeah. Although I think RuPaul would still identify himself as a drag queen. I think a lot of people would. Um but I think the interesting thing is, so transsexual, so Barbarella, she is transgender. She's a transgender woman. Um, there are a couple of more articles um, that you can read across the first few issues of drag, interviews with Barbarella. Um, she's getting hormone treatment at the time. And there's a fascinating kind of spread on this. And, and I think if you're interested in the history of kind of the transgender community, particularly in New York City, this drag magazine is a place you need to go because this is being presented and produced from within the community. Um, but then you've got the two trans, you've got Lee Brewster drag queen and the way Lee Brewster defines why drag queen is Lee Brewster does it perform performance inner and entertainment. Um, Brewster says he does not derive. He does not identify as a man, as a woman nor does he derive sexual pleasure from the act of putting on women's clothing. Whereas Bunny Eisenhower and Kay Gibbons, both identified as transvestites, derive sexual gratification, at least in part, by dressing like a woman. Is it offensive to dress like a woman and try to entertain people pretending to be a woman? Uh, the lesbian community early on says yes. Well, and I mean, I think feminists in general might say yes, too, because so you're mocking a uh, marginalized group. Well, night, yeah. <laughs> 1973, there's a big... Pro so 1973, um, there is a, a confrontation that takes place between um, women in the lesbian movement in New York City and men in the gay liberation movement in New York City, and members of what is called STAR. And let me find my notes for the acronym for STAR. I want to get this correct, what STAR stands for. Um, 
course, I'm not going to be able to find my note now. Uh, I'll come back to that. I'll find it eventually in my notes. It's street transvestite action revolutionaries. Right. So Marsha Johnson is involved in this um, as well as several other people. And there's this confrontation that takes place and several lesbians say they do not want people like Marsha Johnson to be part of this because they find the act of drag and they're not drawing that distinction between transgender and and drag. They find it misogynist. They say it's misogynist. And it is only when Bette Midler gets on stage and starts to sing Friends that kind of the crowd stops being so confrontational with one another. But again, I mean, again, this is evidence that there's not cohesion in this movement like people imagine today. So Marsha Johnson is involved in Stonewall. She is there the night of Stonewall. She, according to multiple eyewitnesses, is one of the first people to hurl something at the police. However, the first photographic evidence we have of people, there's only one photo. Did you know this? There's only one photo from that night. Yeah. And it's, it's mostly men. It's street kids. It's these, it's basically boys and young men who've come to New York. A lot of them are hustlers. Virtually none of them have been identified. They're just kind of nameless street youths. Um, So here's where we start to get friction between what do we have evidence for and what do we have kind of oral corroboration? Um, Multiple eyewitnesses report Johnson is is very much involved. Johnson's life, her her story itself ends in tragedy. She is found dead in the Hudson River in 1992. it was ruled um, suicide, although uh, Victoria Cruz, she's with the New York City Anti-Violence Project. She actually reopened the case not too long ago. There's been uh, quite a few kind of works, uh, books and documentaries about her. Um, because the question comes like, well, why why did she die? Who killed her? Why did they kill her? But Johnson, I mean, she's an interesting figure. And I think she's much more interesting than Sylvia, Sylvia Rivera, who co-founds Star with her. Now I find in my notes, Star. Um, I think she's much more interesting because Johnson, again, represents multiple identities competing. Well, and Johnson um, ends up being an advocate during the AIDS epidemic and ACT UP and all that, right? Well, and she's advocating for people of color during Mm -hmm. those. Right, right. Because she has these intersecting identities. Right. So we can have a whole other episode about AIDS in New York and what happens. But one of the early things is the gay men's health crisis and other organizations that start to form. AIDS initially impacts right at the beginning in the United States, mostly white men of a certain age. And then it spreads out from there. Then it kind of grows out of that. But a lot of the very early AIDS activism is centered on gay men. 
gay white men. Johnson advocates for people of color. She also advocates to transgender women who are being affected by this. Um, they did perform some interviews with her, so we do have some interviews, but obviously she wasn't alive for something like the Oral History Project um, to talk about these things. But getting back to Stonewall itself, I mean, it's Stonewall does create change in New York City. Um, the police decide they're kind of not raid like this the same way they're gonna they've been doing mostly because over five nights they kind of get their asses kicked by the protesters um and today you when can you actually... think of all the other unrest that's happening it's like mm -hmm. there's a lot going on in 1969 in the united states so like it almost might be like well this is the least of our problems at the moment is that fair maybe yeah yeah, I think it is. And I also think it's a thing of most New Yorkers, even if they maybe did not approve of the homosexual lifestyle, as they would have called it, felt that New York City was kind of a broad, big space and there was space for people. Let me ask you this. Do you think that because it was perceived at the time as mostly white men, that the response or the pushback maybe wasn't as bad as if, if it had been predominantly women or predominantly people of color. Repeat that question. That the movement is, you know, kind of considered at the time as being predominantly white men that the mm -hmm. rioting, right. It's like, Oh, these middle upper class white men, I mean, some, it is, like it street isn't. boys, but white men. I, right. yeah. I mean, I know that there's a lot of diversity at the Stonewall Inn, but like, I think a lot of early activism is very is very white and it's very male. I mean, is it possible that it would be uh, treated differently if it were, you know, say 300 black men rioting in the streets? Uh, and this is just a question. I don't know. I'm, I'm just throwing, I'm just spitballing here. Well, I mean, New York City has a sticky history about black men rioting in the city. I know that. And that's why I'm, I know that up, it usually ends up with the police killing a lot of black men. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm getting at because there were so many white men who were involved in this. Like it's almost like the police just kind of let it go. If it were predominantly women or predominantly people of color, I think that it would have gone on and I think it would have gotten very violent. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe, you know, obviously we'll never know completely. Um, we do know this. So members of the Mattachine Society do actually say, look, maybe this is what the movement needed. Um, maybe they actually did need this. I mean, it's a very interesting thing because similar to things that are going on in the civil rights movement, the Mattachine, at least initially, is adopting a very kind of Martin Luther King approach to protest and social change. Whereas someone like Marsha Johnson has had it and she's adopting a much more confrontational style. Um, uh, Zazu Nova and Jackie Hormona are the other two people. I did want to call them out because I think it's important we kind of remember these names. Here's the thing. We know the names of some of these protesters at Stonewall. Many of them we do not. They are nameless. 
Um, but we also know after the first night, second night, people decide to go down and riot again. Now the media shows up. Um, the New York Times, the New York Post, and the Daily News all show up. Um, the New Daily News actually put it on their very front page. Um, so, but what's interesting is this conspiracy theories start to rise about who caused the riots. Oh, yay. So there's We're a back rumor around that the conspiracies. There's a rumor going around that the Black Panthers actually engineered this to sow discord amongst the white population. What do you think about that? I bullshit. bullshit. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's sounds no, pretty far fetched. I don't here's know. Here's the thing is, I think there are people involved in it who definitely draw inspiration for the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. I don't say, think the Black Panthers would want to be being involved with gay community, the gay community. Well, that's the thing is, well, that's, and that's the thing is, I think when you start to separate people like Angela Davis out of the Black Panthers movement, it becomes a fairly anti-gay group of men. Well, and not just anti-gay, just a very misogynistic space. Right. It's it's a very, today we call it a very heterosexual very male space. I would call it toxic masculinity. Um, well, and this is the reason Angela Davis has issues, right? I mean, this sure. is the reason people have issues with it. Um, but once it's out on front pages and it starts, public starts to see kind of what's happening. I think things are never going to go back to the way they were. And in 19, June 1970, they actually hold the first Pride Parade. Um, it is not initially called a Pride Parade. It is called, what is it called? The Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, okay. Sunday, June 28th. Out of the closet and into the streets. Out the of the slogan, closet right? and into the streets. Um uh, on Sunday, June 28th, which has been designated Christopher Street Liberation Day, thousands of homosexual women and men will march up 6th Avenue for Christopher Street in Greenwich Village to the Sheep Meadow in Central Park for a gay inn. So 1970s. What's a gay um, inn? What happens at a gay it's inn? like a love inn or like a peace inn or it's, it's a hippie thing. I see. Um, assembly time for the march is 12 to 1 uh, at... Sheridan Square. So Sheridan Square is a little park that's right next to the Stonewall Inn. These events will be the culmination. So this is an actual press release. Um, the organization that Lee Brewster was part of kind of puts out. Uh, these events will be the culmination of Gray Pride, Gay Pride Week, June 22nd to the 28th, a week throughout which the East Coast gay organizations will commemorate the Christopher Street uprisings. So they're calling an uprising right there, but they're not calling it Stonewall, right? Right. They want to view it as the entire neighborhood. The community. What's interesting is that just one year later that people, I mean, you're, you're talking about what, what we said in the beginning. It's like, this is considered a crime. Mm-hmm. It's considered a mental disorder. Um, people are being institutionalized. People are losing their jobs. In 365 days, the culture doesn't shift that dramatically. For people to go out and commemorate this a year mm-hmm. later, that's really brave. I mean, they were risking a lot about their reputation in order to go out and commemorate this uprising from a year prior, because it's not like suddenly culture shifted and said, oh, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to put out rainbow flags everywhere. I mean, and they are. The rainbow flag comes a few years later, 1978. Um, 
initially has eight stripes. Pink and turquoise are eventually dropped to six stripes. And now we have new versions of the pride flag. But it's a fairly rapid change that takes place. The, the transition from 1969, you're worried about police raid, to 1970, you are having a parade down 6th Avenue. You have a full week of events, and you can again go on the Internet Archive and look at some great things. Also, the Library of Congress has some great resources they've collected. Like a full host of events and activities, and it's very political. And for a long time, Pride is very political. Um, I think it still is. Um, is it? Well, I think there's a lot of people on either side of the spectrum who do or do not support businesses who do or do not support pride. And it becomes kind of political, I think. Yeah. I mean, if I don't like the Rams and like Ralph's has a cake with the Rams on it, should I protest Ralph's? And I know that's a minimization. Well, some people do, though. I mean, that's I the know. point. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think it's, you know, I just intelligent. Think Martha, I just I think that people do it. I don't think Marsha Johnson would want us to be doing that, though. What, making pride flags? No, no, no. Being obsessed with that kind of political activism, oh. which I'm not really sure that's political activism at well, all. Well, I mean, it's economic, right? I mean, there is something to be said about like uh, yes. how this has turned into just like, there are, you know, some disgusting display work. of capitalism. Right. Boycotts work, but I think it's the opposite of that, right? It's yeah. It's like we were talking about earlier. I think it's corporate pride is kind of a nauseating mix of seeming to cater to a community but at the end of the day not maybe really caring Just much to about make them money it drives me nuts because like, there I, are countries in this world where you can get executed if you are gay still right now um you also have countries like iran where if you are gay you are given the choice to be executed or to transition to transition to being right. a woman which that is so fascinating to me that Iran is one of the leading countries in the world for um, transgender or for gender reassignment surgery. And it's based upon, well, it's okay to be gay as long as you're. Well, it's not okay to be gay. Well, no, I it's mean, okay it's okay no, to have sex okay. with a man okay as long as you're a, a woman. As long as you're a woman. Yes. I'm sorry. And we will make you a woman. Yes. We will make, make you a woman okay. so you can have sex with a man. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, I know we touched on a lot of stuff and we didn't do anything too in depth, but I mean, hopefully this just gives you a more recent historical events are very hard to pin down. Yeah. Um, but it, I like that we we're able to kind of turn it into a conversation of just like, what do we think about watching this develop and like watching the history being kind of written down and whatnot? Um, I think it was a good conversation. Yeah, great. I think we could do more more gay stuff next week, maybe. I don't know. I mean, you want to do AIDS? Want to do the history of AIDS? It's it's uh, kind of yeah. salient. I do. I think that that would be smart. But that's another one where it's like, this is very recent. But I think that, yeah, we could do that. Well, ongoing even. Ongoing. Right. Are you sure you want to do it? Yeah. Okay. All right. Why? Let's do it. I, I mean, thinking, it's, it's I something to give a South Park quote, but 
It's a, it's, oh, <laughs> it's just, um, again, I think it's a thing that particularly younger people today who want to be real activists in these kind of movements or, or in broader movements, you need to understand how these movements started. You need to understand where they came from, what their goals were, what problems in those movements initially were. Um, There's some conspiracy stuff there that we can talk about too and debunk, discuss. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. All right. Well, that sounds good. I'm excited. All right. We'll do that. Well, until next week, I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining.